any smart entrepreneur values their relationships, customers, with employees, with everyone. You know long-term what matters in terms of your relationships. I would think about the media like that too. I mean, if you can start to take the time to forge relationships with people who cover something that you're right, that you're what you're working on, that where your company is in, a number of different people, but do it as a relationship rather than saying like, can you please write my story? Welcome everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, managing partner of Interplay. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. This week, I chat with Maureen Farrell, a journalist who recently moved from the Wall Street Journal to the New York Times. And notably, she's the co-author of the book, The Cult of We. The Cult of We is about the rise and fall of WeWork, which Maureen covered extensively while she was at the Journal. She also is such an expert on this topic, she was featured in the Hulu documentary, WeWork, The Making and Breaking of a $47 Billion Unicorn. She's one of the authorities on the whole saga that happened. Now, the saga into itself is interesting. There's a lot of drama to talk about, but in this conversation, we try to extract some business insights, things entrepreneurs can learn, good and bad, from what happened at WeWork. Now, Maureen is also a veteran tech journalist. She's a grad from Duke and Columbia's journalism school. She spent 15 to 20 years at CNN, Forbes, and the Wall Street Journal. So I took this opportunity to get her raw advice about how entrepreneurs should manage their media relationships. And Maureen was kind enough to give us a bit of a playbook. I hope it's helpful to you. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Venwise. Venwise is a curated community of high-growth leaders. It's isolating being a leader, but it doesn't have to be. Through Venwise, you can join discussions and gain support from fellow C-level executives at high-growth tech companies. If you're interested, apply by visiting venwise.com. Welcome, Maureen. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Okay, before we dive in, you mind just giving folks a little background, you know, overview of your background? How did you become the person uh, that was covering WeWork? Sure, happy to do that. So I've been a journalist for a long time, um, almost since uh, you and I graduated Duke a long time ago. Don't admit it. <laughs> Not that long. Um, but I've been at the Wall Street Journal for about eight years. And for a lot of them, I've been covering startups, capital markets, IPOs. And over the last several years, in general, covering IPOs, there was just sort of a small cohort of companies that were the most interesting of all these companies that were going to go public. Uber, Airbnb, Lyft, put WeWork in that category. So we were, I was sort of diving deep into these companies and um, you know, their experiences with the capital markets. So I started looking at WeWork and I, a colleague of mine, Elliot Brown, who I wrote the book, The Cult of We With, was uh, covering, he had been a commercial real estate reporter and had become obsessed with the whole WeWork story and Adam Newman. And well, there are so many flattering profiles of Adam Newman in particular. He had sort of written a lot of uh, stories kind of questioning the company and um, the valuation and everything else. So we wound up teaming up a lot in 2018. And uh, on our reporting, I sort of jumped in as it was getting closer to IPO. SoftBank was giving WeWork billions upon billions of dollars. So that's what sort of led me to the book specifically. Um, 
we kept on working on stories through 2019. We work uh, was going to go public. It was, you know, the high point as the IPO reporter. <laughs> this is the moment. And then the uh, IPO debacle that never was an IPO um, just became the most in- insane story of my entire career. Okay. And so that, that hooked you and you decided you were going to lean into it? Yes, exactly. We um, it basically over a weekend, Elliot and I had been started talking. Oh, maybe we could write a book on this. What do you think? So we kind of worked on like a paragraph or two. Then Adam Newman really suddenly resigned. We'd been just following the story, writing stories around the clock for a few weeks, and we Elliot had talked to an agent, an incredible agent that we worked with, um, and he Eric Lupfer. He went, we wound up getting an offer and based on our two paragraphs, we had a book deal and like a couple of days later. So it was, it was a whirlwind, but a, an exciting one. And I, I don't think there's ever been a topic I've been as excited to kind of spend a year or two working on. It's fascinating. Let's talk about why it was so exciting. You know, there are plenty of debacles in the startup community. You know, I, I, I have this as an entrepreneur in VC, I kind of have this love hate with some of the negative press around failures in entrepreneurship because failing is part of our program. We need to be able to fail safely in order to take risks and encourage people to kind of get back up and keep trying. Um, And there's plenty of debacles, but this one I think um, caught people's eye in a different way. So why is this more of an interesting story than all of the other startups that have burned along the way? And WeWork's still around and thriving, right? They're, They're not where they were, but this one seems to have caught the public's imagination. So why is that? Sure. And I'll, I'll answer this in two parts because I think you make a great point on sort of the, the merits of failure. And I, I, I do have to say, maybe, maybe you don't see this as much in the press, but I do think there is like some American capitalism and the startup culture. There is some sort of, there is a level of respect for the entrepreneur that's, um, you know, had, had a fail, had a failure or two that you've learned so much from them. So I guess first I'll take the part about um, what makes this different. I mean, I think first of all, it was there were questions. Basically, the not the center of gravity. The foundation of this business was just really never there. When you, if you look at it, essentially, it um, you know it was never a company that ha- that w- it was predicated on this idea that it was a tech company, not a real estate company. And from very early on, if you look at the business model of WeWork, I mean, there's some things you just can't deny about the cost of building these businesses. It's never going to have the same effect as a, as a tech company where you can spend money and eventually the profits come because you don't have to keep on spending a lot of money to develop the software. You can just sell it. Like WeWork just didn't have a model. You had to build out offices all over the world. There was just sort of a finite amount of profits. So a lot of this was sort of predicated on just wrong ideas, this business. And I mean, essentially, what happened here in so many ways was, I mean, you have this absolutely charismatic entrepreneur, Adam Newman, who sort of blinded people to the realities of the business and let some of the top venture firms, some of the top investors in the world, I mean, you had venture firms like Benchmark, SoftBank, um, Harvard's Endowment, JP Morgan. These are great firms with very bright people. Exactly. Who just all were sort of willing to buy into this vision and just keep on throwing more and more money at this company 
So, I mean, I think it was a few different things. I mean, number one, just the amount of money put towards WeWork that ultimately, you know, was lost in so many ways at the time of the IPO. You're right. This is a thriving business now, but this became a company that was valued at $47 billion. Adam Newman, the CEO, was telling people he was being told by bankers on Wall Street that this was going to be an $80 billion company, a $100 billion company. It was going to take over the world. And it was just a lot was uh, just not real. And I think it was it's sort of the dangers of the Silicon Valley culture right now, this tech world that, you know, just sort of being blinded to business realities and a hope and a dream of things. I mean, there's many companies that have made it work, but there is a certain there's certain fundamental business metrics that you have to consider. So I think and and the excesses of Adam Newman in particular, I mean, we can get into them more, but things like there's bit covering startups and I'm sure you you know and have seen this, Mark, like there's barely any startups where the CEO they buy a private jet. And there's this company that was not even close to making a profit, burning money. And they board of directors approved Adam Newman having his own WeWork private jet. $65 million before the company had gone public and he flew it all over the world a lot on his personal, you know, to go surfing all over the world. And then Adam Newman also took hundreds of millions of dollars out of the company, so selling stock, borrowing against the company to the tune of more than a billion dollars before anyone else was able to take money out. Not before a lot of people were able to in a big way. Mm. So I think there are all these contradictions. There's a lot to unpack there. I want to talk about the first thing you said, which I think is fascinating and always thought was part of the story uh, as an outsider to the WeWork uh, journey. This idea of a crossover company, companies that are not tech, do not have you know, what we'll call exponential resource efficiency. That's the fancy venture term for it. For every additional dollar they spend, they can make incrementally more profits as they scale. That's not the dynamic of the math of a real estate business. Real estate business, like you said, is, you know, you spend a dollar, you make 50 cents, you spend another dollar, you make 50 more cents. It's linear. So how does a comp, how did we work? Do you think, do they, do they achieve this crossover status where they were being valued as a high growth venture company when they were a high growth real estate company? I think that, I mean, what you're, what you're asking is like the essential question of um, you know what worked for so long, Adam Newman's ability to convince people of this, this crossover effect when it didn't exist, and just the um, just the wildness of this story, basically. This is what underpins it all. I think a lot of it was purely his charisma. And I mean, th- we are in this world, and I'd love to hear more what you think on this, but you know, founders, there's this sort of like aura around founders in a lot of ways that, you know, give them money. If you're brilliant enough, you could, a visionary enough, you can just figure it out. And I think Adam Newman knew how to just tell a better and better and better story. And I think he could just take it that, you know, WeWork was not a real estate company at all. It was a tech company. It was, he somehow knew how to, take the verbiage of the moment um, at each step of the way and use that to convince investors of the promise of this company. 
um, like early on, he called it the physical social network. It was like as Facebook was going public and was valued so right. high. And then he was eventually calling it an artificial intelligence company, which is like their tech was so it was very unsophisticated. Um, but the it's what floored us writing the book, I think, each step of the way is, you know, it wasn't a fraud, really. I mean, these investors, these, as we said, some of the most sophisticated investors in the world, they had access to the financials. So we saw so many of his presentations. I mean, he was promising the moon and the stars and, you know, profitability like Amazon in a couple of years. But he did that from the beginning and investors also had access to his, you know, what he said he was going to do, but also his financials. And if you look, I mean, they never achieved any of the things they set out two years later. But I mean, he could say what he wants. And they had wrong like numbers in front of them to look at. And one of the interesting things that we noticed in many different situations, um, you can take Fidelity, the um, mutual fund, you can take SoftBank. In a lot of cases, the, the analysts, like lower level analysts who are crunching the numbers would look at them and say, this is crazy. This business doesn't make sense. None of the things he's saying makes sense. But then the main person and decision maker in power, you know, in almost every case, and the man in power would say, okay, whatever. Thanks for telling me that. We're just going to invest anyway. They would overlook it. Um, and it was like, you know, we, we see something in Adam Newman that you don't see. I think uh, from the VC side of this, I think there is some psychology, not just around the founder, but around the other VCs who have already invested or are writing a check into the round, right? Venture is a hard business, right? You know, I, when, when I'm fundraising or talking to folks, I'll often say a phrase, I'll say, look, only in baseball and in venture is batting 300 awesome. Because, you know, in high school, a 30% on a math quiz is an F, right? Uh, but, but in this world of the blind, where a lot of people don't know how to find consistent returns and how to identify clear winners, there is some signaling that people look to in the who else is investing in the deal. And so when, some, when a founder is able to grab a whole bunch of really sharp, big name firms with really smart people, that's pretty convincing to a lot of other future investors. And it does create a bit of um, an interesting dynamic in, in situations like this where I don't know how people made decisions, but people might have been looking and saying, well, yes, you're saying, analyst, that the numbers are wrong, but this other venture firm can't be wrong because they're, they're incredible. right?" It's, it's almost like a proof point having capital from some of the biggest names. I think, I think you're completely right on this. Like The signaling effect, the echo chamber, I mean, it just gets... Um, dangerous there really i mean when it just seems like there was something to the effect of outsourcing the decision making like you you get the benchmark sign of approval on a company and other people are at least aren't afraid to go in it's like they've gotten so many things right as you said I and mean, they're like mvps from you know having certain huge winners so why not just trust them yeah it's created an interesting thing strategically in the venture market not particular to WeWork, but just broadly, there are some firms that have so much sway with how other investors invest that they almost act as kingmakers for companies. If Sequoia writes a check into your company, they're very good at investing. Almost everyone else is going to be predisposed to writing a check. And so it's almost as though some firms, I think, have the potential to turn companies with no potential into successes. 
just by lending their name. And it's, that's obviously a bit of an extreme comment, but it's, it's a very powerful position of authority in the venture market. It's, I mean, it's an amazing thing. It's, I mean, turn them into successes, but also just get, you know, have money racing to these companies, which doesn't always necessarily translate into winners ultimately. The sort of the, the following the crowd, the herd mentality is just incredibly interesting to see. So after this is hit, you know, the, the bomb kind of went off, this thing detonated. Um, it seems like people have done a pretty good job of recalibrating the business and setting it up to be a standalone operating entity with some prospects now post-COVID. Um, do you feel like people are post, you know, I'm sure you have strong, it sounds like you have strong opinions about Adam and the management team, but do you think the broader uh, community of employees are being treated fairly? One, th- one thing I struggle with is I, look, WeWork has become kind of a, you know, a scarlet letter. And there's a lot of really smart people who are there who are off building companies now or doing other stuff. And it's almost, I've seen a couple of times where they're bashed. They're kind of degraded by saying, you know, X, we work, whatever. Um, do you think that that's, you know, how do you view kind of the postmortem on this and how it's affecting the ecosystem? Sure. So I guess a couple of things on that. I mean, I completely agree with you. I mean, among Adam Newman's talent on the, the talent that was there, I mean, he was an incredibly talented entrepreneur in many ways of getting the top, getting the investment money flowing to WeWork, getting the world's top investors. He also managed to recruit some of the, like the best employees from each individual field. And, um, I mean, I think that's kind of the, that was one, one of the tragedies of this whole thing. I think, I mean, it's like he brought these really amazing people from, uh, who said, and even people I spoke to, whether you're an architect or in finance or a lawyer, a lot of people said this company was nuts and there was frustrations with Adam taking so much money out sort of leading to the company's downfall. But many people were like, I learned more and it was the most fun job I will ever have in my life. Mm. So, I mean, I think it's it's frustrating to look at his takeaway from this whole thing. I mean, he got this insane exit package. All these people work for years and, you know, who knows what their um, stock options, if anything, will ultimately be. And, but in terms of the stigma on WeWork, it's interesting that you're seeing this because it, I, it's hard to tell yet because it, it does seem like a number of the employees, um, it did really foster an entrepreneurial culture internally. Yeah. So it does seem like a lot of co- really interesting companies are being launched by um, people there, former employees. So I think it's a bit too early to tell. I mean, I mean, to your point on failure, it's pretty, it seems like it would be crazy on some levels to not want to hire a WeWork employee because it was like, I mean, just a, such a spectacular rise, a crazy fall. But the lessons learned there, I mean, if you think any business, if you can learn from failure, it's a pretty incredible one to have learned um, from the failures. And and not, and just to jump into one other thing, I think I just want to go back to the point that you made on failure and how this all, you know, and you, your point about, you know, the media maybe getting too deep into failures or, or writing about them. Not always, just in some cases. But I, yeah. what I think here is the sort of turning a blind eye to some of the questions here by everyone. One of the things, I, one of the takeaways from this story, I think, is, um, you know, I'll give credit to Adam Newman for the rise and for a lot of the fall. But you have this, these incredible investors 
uh, like a top level, very high level board of directors who signed off on every single decision, uh, many big decisions like getting a plane, the money he took out of the company. And uh, one of the things I wonder a lot is, I mean, how many other people could have done what Adam Newman did building this company? And what if the people around him had done their job? I mean, he pushed things as far as they could. What if, what if the, you know, he had the guardrails in place that could have kept Mm. him doing these amazing things, but stopped him from overreaching? And, you know, what if the board and top management and others probably acted as they should have? And so that's one of the things that we really hope is the takeaway from this is like, what Mm. could this company have been? And, uh, you know, what could the, what promises could have been achieved here? That's very interesting. So there's some there's some good and the bad. I want to just touch on those and take some lessons learned. I mean, you studied this more closely than most. So taking it as a case study here, focusing on the bad for a second, there was some governance failures. Can you, what what are the, some of the things you saw and, you know, any insights for other board members listening, entrepreneurs listening about how to think about governance? And I'll throw anecdotally on this. I have a feeling in that type of situation with such a high-rise company with a, a charismatic leader, there's fear. You know, I, I don't know. I'm I'm projecting here, and I don't know the dynamic at all. But I imagine if you've got, if you believe Adam is the company, and he wants a sixty-five million dollar jet, you know, as as ludicrous as that might sound, that that maybe is a complicated decision if you feel like it's a risk. Any thoughts on how boards can be more effective in dealing with these types of situations? And we've got Theranos in the news right now. There's a lot of Governance opportunity right now, or lessons learned, probably to to stare at. Sure. So I do think it was fear, fear of standing up to him, fear of um, there is something to the effect of it sounded like in many cases, like let's throw up our hands. What can we really do as a board member? You know, Adam Newman has founder control. He had these super like these potent voting shares, so theoretically mm. he can overrule us. So. Fine, we'll just go along with it. And um, I mean, in the case of WeWork, what I'll say is the examples are so egregious. And I'll just, I'll pick one. Going right after the IPO, um, Elliot, my co-author and I heard at like Adam Newman missed some board meetings. So we said, wow, that's like crazy. Maybe if the fact that if he missed a board meeting or two leading up to the IPO, like, we should try to find out what it is. Like that's sort of unimaginable. It's the biggest thing in the company's history. When right. we dug further, it turned out he barely went to board meetings for like a year and a half. And I mean, we we had wow. minutes. We saw it was like not present. Adam Newman at board meeting after board meeting, and we heard eventually someone said, "Oh well, one of the directors flipped out at Adam and said he has to start coming to board meetings." Guess when this was. Uh, the week before the failed IPO. <laughs> That's when they like, wow. and it, it was uh, one of the reasons one of the board members flipped out at him was that he um, had appointed a new board member. They were, people were very upset when all the, uh, about a million things in their S1, the IPO filing once it was made public. But among them was this mission driven company. How do you have all white men on your board? So at the very last minute, Adam decided to appoint a Harvard Business School professor who had worked as a consultant to the company. 
He, her name's Frances Fry. He appoints her, doesn't tell the board. And they, that was like the last straw. So one of the board members flipped out at him and was like, you have to start coming to board meetings and you can't do this. Um, but it was like, gosh, these high level, really esteemed members of the business community that they would like, I mean, just the, just the symbolic value. And there was so much more than that of him not showing up, like how, how little yeah, value he to them. Um, so I mean, with WeWork, it's so, egregious but um i don't know i mean we're in this tough moment that it's you barely see any companies with that are like doing really well at fundraising and seemingly doing really well that the founders aren't able to get these voted super voting shares of more rights i mean that seems like kind of commonly accepted but it's dangerous and i mean a lesson for board members is it, even if they have all the power I mean, you can still vote like even symbolically, you could you don't have to go along with everything. You can cast a vote against some of these things. It seems like that it's hard to imagine it when you change things a bit if someone, you know, even with a vote stood up to Adam Newman. Hmm. Well, there were some positive things in this, and I'm not trying to put a positive spin on it here. But the reason it got to be such a big deal is because they had these huge successes in a couple dimensions. What can, having studied this, what could other founders learn about culture building? Because obviously, it seems pretty unparalleled what they achieved in the community and all that. Now, I'm sure they wasted a lot of money doing that. But anything that was like a key takeaway where you saw this and you're just like, you know, they did this incredibly well and other companies should do it. Obviously, you know, not copy all the lessons, but copy that dimension. I mean, I think this. This whole idea of culture, like really feeling, he had something, Adam Newman had something very right in this idea of community. I mean, people, people want community. I mean, we realize that so much more as we're starved, we've been starved for it during the pandemic. Um, but I think he hit all, everything he's, the rhetoric around community at WeWork. I mean, people for the most part loved being part of the WeWork community. I think employees, there's something that they wanted that they found there, especially like early on. So I think there is something in, you know, just fostering a culture, making people feel like they have a common mission, getting people excited about that up to a, up to a point. I think it really um, worked so well and people felt like they were all going after something so much bigger, what, what they were building. And it, led them to do incredible things. I mean, the piece of building openings, like, and that was the thing about Adam. I mean, he's an incredibly inspiring leader and he would tell people, oh, you know, we're going to open 10 buildings and people, it would be impossible. Some of the goals he said, and people would do them because you'd work around the clock for him because he'd get you so inspired and so excited about that. I mean, there's like, there's, there's charisma. There's something that's, you know, hard to um, completely follow in that. I mean, it's some of it, I think, is a little bit like innate in certain leaders. But I think it is yeah. like making people feel like they're part of something bigger. If you run a company, is just so can, can take, uh, you know, it's more important to people, employees, than I think other than money, than other things. It can really make them feel like they're part of something bigger. It seems like that's the common thread in his superpower, right? From the fundraising to it's it's all a form of sales, right? 
successfully raised money with audacious promises and successfully built a culture, um, getting up, giving speeches, the whole thing. Not everyone's got that gene. There's a lot of great CEOs out there who don't have that, but uh, it seems like he had it in spades. Okay. Uh, can we switch on for a second? I want to talk a little bit about your journey on the book. So I got the story from you earlier and why you wrote the book. Is this uh, we work part of your career? Is this going to be one of the kind of the mountains that you'll look back on in your timeline? Or is this uh, a chapter and you've had many other chapters like this and more to come? How does this fit in your world? Oh, um, I mean, this is probably just the most fun thing I've ever gotten to do. The most interesting thing as a journalist. I mean, I, especially at the Wall Street Journal, I've felt so lucky. I've had the chance to tackle um, some really interesting stories and go pretty deep on them, have amazing colleagues. But I do, I guess I do feel like this is a true mountain. I mean, there's never, I've never had as much time um, to dive so deep into a story. And I love the process of writing the book. I mean, it was, uh, we really had the chance, Elliot and I, to just talk to hundreds of people. So it was like just a litany of people at every corner of the world of WeWork and of the fundraising world. So it, yeah, it was incredibly enjoyable and it, it felt kind of luxurious. It was like you're back in college, but you, know, you really know the, um, the true like specifics of where you want to go with everything you're learning. Um, we split up the book, we split up chapters, we worked on a lot of things together, but you know, there's this chapter on mutual funds and it was like, wow, to take like a week or two to read like every single thing imaginable about mutual funds or. I spent weeks um, talking to everyone I could imagine in relation to Masayoshi Son, the CEO and founder of SoftBank, and learning his history and the people who've known him along the way. So, um, as a journalist, you don't, it feels lucky to be sort of writing the first draft of history, as they say, as it happens, but to have the chance to have written it as it happened, but go back and realize, I mean, in some cases, we thought we knew. A situation that happens, and then we talk to more people in the room. We're like, gosh, like I mean, it constantly. It would happen like every other day. We're like, whoa, this is like you go deeper and you learn more crazy things. Um, it's fascinating. Did you take off work to do this? Was this a you stepped out to write the book? I mean, I'd imagine this was pretty all-consuming. I did. We wound up. Um, so this all a lot of this played out. The you know the fall of. Adam Newman and the IPO happened in September of 2019. So we basically stayed on until February. And a, a lot of our work, we did some big, bigger stories on this. So a lot, we got to take a lot of time to kind of continue to unpack the story. But in February 2020, um, we both took six months of book leave. And um, it was funny. I started it. I was like, gosh, it's going to be so weird working from home. And... <laughs> Um, little did I know in like two weeks, we all were like on book leave of sorts. <laughs> right. It became normal. Um, I, I'd love to get your advice on some stuff here for folks listening. There's going to be a lot of entrepreneurs and VCs listening. Uh, there's no good training guide in the startup community for navigating the PR media side of the house. There's a lot written about building SaaS companies and hiring talent, but there's just not a lot of you know, good guidance out there. You're living in this and you have for a long time. What advice do you have for founders uh, who want to get their story out? How do they do that? Sure. I guess 
One of the things I think founders should be the most careful about is in terms of PR, it, there are, it does seem, and I used to cover startups much more. I used to work at Forbes. I covered startups a little more specifically. I've noticed in cases, I mean, sometimes you hire a PR firm to get the word out and they just blanket reporters with emails to a way that I think can be almost like harmful to the brand of a company. I mean, it just feels like there's not, and then there's amazing people on PR. I mean, I, I have a lot of very close relationships of people who I think are just incredibly smart, but I think there are firms where it's just like, will like spam you essentially with emails yeah. about this founder. And I've talked to some founders about this and I don't think they quite realize what it's see from the other side. And, you know, there are people without the relationships, without the, you know, making the calls. And I think in some cases, you know, I don't know so much about the cost structure of it, but if you're getting started, if I got an email from a CEO telling me his or her story a little bit, I'm probably more likely to see it, try to respond than if it's from just seems like a spam email from a random PR shop if I don't know them. And there, I mean, as a journalist, you are flooded with pitches. It's, um, I mean, especially startup journalists, mm -hmm. like really unbelievable. And I mean, I still will be flooded with like emails about things not even related to what I'm covering. So I think that's the first thing, like, People should just be really careful about, you know, who they use. Secondly, I would say it's very, it's a long game, like everything. And as an entrepreneur, like any smart entrepreneur values their relationships, with customers, with employees, with everyone, you know, long-term what matters in terms of your relationships. I would think about the media like that too. I mean, if you can start to take the time to forge relationships with people who cover something that you're right, that you're what you're working on, that where your company is in, a number of different people, but do it as a relationship rather than saying, like, can you please write my story? And see, like, you know, can I be a resource for you? You start to build relationships. And I think over the long term, having those are like will be helpful and you probably will get much more press more organically that way than sort of going after a pitch for a specific story. Now, a lot of entrepreneurs already understand the relationship concept and they do it in the business world, right? Not on the media side. I think where people get lost is they're not sure how to communicate or add value or interface with journalists. So in non, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, it's like, hey, let's get coffee. We go out for coffee and then, or we have a meeting and then everyone's trying to help each other, but the types of help is commonly understood at certain types of introductions or otherwise. What's the framework that entrepreneurs should have for thinking about how to start relationship building with journalists? I think you do it in very similar ways. I mean, go out for a coffee, learn about what they cover, how they think about coverage, how, and try to understand the kind of how you fit into it. Like with this person... Do they write profiles? I mean, or do they write more thematic stories? What are they thinking about? How can you be helpful? How, how, do, like, how could you also get your story told? If they don't do it, do they have ideas of who could tell your story? I think a lot of journalists, I'm, everyone's busy on both sides, obviously, but if you, you take the time 
And then it's, you know, sort of organically follow up from there. Um, I, th- I think it's, it's more similar to the relationship building in other areas and networking as an entrepreneur than most people would think. And then, you know, it's like the way you forge the deeper relationships that I think are more fruitful longer term, too. So one of the things I tell entrepreneurs or uh, any, anyone, frankly, who wants to get into VC is I always tell them, come bearing gifts. And so you, when you go to meet a VC, it's like, hey, show up with a deal, even if they don't like it, just to show that you can find stuff and you're there to help. Um, what kind of gifts do uh, journalists want to receive? Um, first of all, that's such a great phrase and such a good, a good way of thinking about it. I would say just like not like industry knowledge and understanding. I mean, if you could have a, a broad, like broad conversations about like interesting things going on. I mean, I think you need to start with like a very open conversation about what things are. I mean, read, read up on what they cover and understand what they want to know. And I mean, you, at your fingertips at that the moment of your conversation have more like a wealth of info so much more than you could imagine that you know that they don't so i i feel like you the gifts are kind of there of um you know this is this is how things work this is what you're not seeing this is a crazy story like just over the course of a conversation with some openness um it's there really like the gift is your own knowledge and you most entrepreneurs would have that plus you know the connections on both ways like oh you might want to talk to this startup person they if you're interested in this this they know this and vice versa i think any um good journalist say oh well you know maybe i'm not covering this but maybe this person at my publication or you might want to tap this publication as better at profiles or whatever right right it all sounds makes sense and sounds familiar, but I, I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with it. So there's a fear, right? I think a lot of entrepreneurs and founders have fear that they're going to talk to a journalist and something bad's going to be written or they're going to say the wrong thing. There's there's anxiety within the business community sometimes around talking to journalists. Um, any watch outs? I, I know a lot of that's not real. What should people who are building these relationships be careful about not doing? Sure. I guess I would say from the first moment, you want to set the ground rules on both sides. Like if, and it's fine. I'm pretty open to talking to people on background. I just feel like people, especially, especially entrepreneurs who, you know, you're getting started. My opinion is, and I would say most people, like you don't want to burn anyone at all, but especially not someone who's like just trying to look to build something exciting. But as an entrepreneur for safety or anyone really, set that make sure you completely understand the ground rules. Say, are we, is this just background? Um, what does that mean, background for folks listening? Sure. So that just means like, can we talk? Nothing's attributable to me. You're not going to use my name unless you say otherwise. You're not going to, um, you know, say my company necessarily. Can we just have an open conversation? And either that works or it doesn't. And if not, I mean, then, j- then you need to be much more careful, obviously, if this is like a fully on the record conversation, this could be used for a story, anything. That's fine. You might want to just then picture everything you're saying in print and just make sure you're okay with that as you go. But I think a lot of journalists are open to um, these sort of just background conversations because you you learn more when people just feel like they can be, 
especially when there's no agenda at the moment. Like if you're having these intro right. conversations, I'm almost always happy doing it on background. Like, let's just talk. Let's get to know each other. Don't censor yourself. Like, we'll just talk and find right. out. Right. And then you can find things to cover and you can kind of get into it. Yeah. But those it's ground rules more are productive. key. And I would assume, like, if once you set them, assume most journalists are going to be true to their word because, I mean, the, the big thing is, like, if you burn a source ever, you're done, I think. You know, the, I've, I mean, I go so far, and especially in some of the things that I'm working on, like we work at others that like, I protect people from themselves sometimes, especially, you know, people who maybe tell you something, maybe, you know, they were the only person in the room, something where they could, you know, it could really negatively impact them. But um, I, but I think just journalists go out of their way. You don't want to ever be in a position where a source has gotten in trouble for something that they've told you. Um, so I think assume that the ground rules are the ground rules and you should trust people. Can you explain, uh, why it's harmful to a journalist if a source gets burned? Because that word, how does the word get out? I think people want to understand there's a, the mechanism of how the system encourages journalists to follow the code. And so they can feel comfortable saying, okay, we're on background. I understand what that means. Let me dive in. And I know that everyone's going to honor it because it's new language. It's new territory for a lot of the business people. Yeah. I mean, I think you can say it a few times, just say, making sure my name won't appear. I will know otherwise, you know, if it ever will, you'll tell me, you'll give me a heads up first. If there's ever a quote, you know, maybe and journalists might say no to this, but it's like, you give me a chance to review it. And then you could say, okay, if you don't want to, those terms, that's fine. I just, I don't want to be quoted then. But um, in terms of the honor code, I mean, the world is so small. If I, like you tell me something in secret, Mark, that you don't want told, you tell me that like something, um, why, like Adam Newman took out $400 million. He sold that much in stock. And I say like, Mark, uh, Mark said that, I quote you on that or I allude to who you are. I mean, it, it is just such an out of bounds thing or in any way when you cross a line that you promise someone. I mean, I think the word gets out. I think you just you lose all credibility as a journalist going forward. Right. So the good journalists for the business folks listening, if you're talking to someone at a, at a legit institution who's got a background in the business and you guys agree kind of like on a, a spit handshake on what the terms are of the engagement, they're going to honor it. And so people can build those relationships and feel comfortable. Um, this is an important thing. I think a lot of the business people, this is one of the hangups. I think this is the barrier to why they're not building the relationships in a non-spammy way, as you talked about before. Anyway, thank you for the advice on that. Um, so what's next for you, right? You've, got, uh, you've kind of done big things in your career already. You've got a long way ahead. What are you, what are you looking to do? What's next for me is I um, am leaving the Wall Street Journal very sadly. I've um, been there almost eight years. It's been an incredible time there. I have incredible colleagues, management, everyone. But I'm going to join the New York Times in October. And I'm also very excited to um, join, join the newspaper, the publication. And I'll be covering sort of private capital more broadly, hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, PE firms, 
looking forward to doing sort of longer enterprise stories there. And um, that's sort of the next immediate step. Well, we look forward to reading what you write. Thank you. Thanks for being on. It was great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, all right. That was awesome. Uh, I hope everyone got some actionable tips out of this and found it helpful. If you like what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.